we all, I think in life, we all want to belong. Um, and gang life was what I identified with. And these were my brothers, I suppose, in arms kind of thing. So that's when it really escalated. So then guns, next thing you know, I, we, we had a meeting um, and uh, they said, that, you, you know, that this means war. Um, if we start this, if we retaliate, it's war. It's just all that war. So I, you know, we all agreed that you couldn't let somebody just come onto your territory and take liberties. So he said, right, okay, that's all I wanted to hear. Then this guy walked in, two holdall bags, just tipped them on the floor. Out came guns and shotguns. So um, it, it just really escalated and, and turned violent very, very quickly. Um, so it was kill or be killed in a sense. You know, I mean, an incident occurred where my girlfriend was raped by one of the other gang members. So I, I then just decided that was that was that was beyond um, anything that I would have even imagined. So I was absolutely furious and devastated at the same time. Um, so I decided that was when I properly decided in my mind that I would take somebody else's life because that. I felt that it was fully justified that what that person had done demanded that kind of response. So welcome back to the podcast with me, Owen Walker. In this session, I'm going to interview Paul Ogunyemi. Paul uh, has a school ministry and a prison ministry alongside full-time work. And in this session and interview, what I wanted to do is really unpick Paul's organic story and his narrative through his life, both from his early years into uh, exactly what he's doing now. So Paul, could I um, just ask you to, um, to maybe open up and just, um, just give us a quick, a brief synopsis of, um, of exactly what you are doing now? Yeah, um, at this moment in time, I'm, tra- I'm just finishing the end of my training with, a, with an organisation called Church Army. Um, they um, train us as evangelists to, to work in areas um, primarily where areas of deprivation um, and try and bring the message of the gospel and to share the good news of Jesus um, in, those, in those deprived areas. So that's what I'm training um, to do at the moment. I've probably got a couple of months left, I think. Um, and then I'll, I'll finish my training and they'll, they'll officially commission me as a church army evangelist. Um, but at present on my own back, um, I have a schools ministry, which I do on a voluntary basis. So I go into schools and just talk to young people, mainly um, from year 11 upwards. And um, also I have a prison ministry um, and yeah, speak to prisoners whenever I'm given the opportunity to do so. So that's 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 a kind of a sideline, really, because I'm, I'm a full, as you say, I'm full time, and in full time employment. So um, it's difficult to try and do it as much as I'd like to. So that's where I'm at the moment. Oh, I speak, I speak in church as well sometimes, and and, and sometimes I'm asked to speak at um, young offenders who've been released into halfway houses, into hostels. Um, so what certain churches do sometimes is they'll take them um, on a walk and then a barbecue afterwards and I'll, I'll speak to them after the barbecue. So I've done that on a few occasions as well. 
So we'll title this session, Paul, Revelation uh, with yourself, because, I mean, your organic story is so fascinating, you know, from 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 growing up in a, in a gang. I think we'll tap into that in a second in in, in Side, in one of maybe one of the most prolific gangs in, in north of England, in, in Manchester. And, and your story sort of marinating through that gang into into, into you know, flipping that around and really giving back into the community. Um, so, you know, having that background, Paul, you can only imagine it really helps you relate to uh, relate to prisoners and relate to maybe their organic story. Can you um, do, do you do you frequently find you're building rapport quite quickly when you're going into um, when you're going into prisons? Yeah, I think um, obviously when people hear of my background, um, it, it's an instant attention grabber, I suppose, because you know they'll they'll some of them will have experience of that kind of lifestyle as well. Um, and such was my involvement, I suppose. It was quite, it was right at the beginning of, of, of um, gang life in, in Manchester as such. So, so that's, that's an instant hook. People are interested to know what your story's about. So, yeah, so it's, it's you know, easy to grab their attention, easy, easy, easy to grab their attention. So, Paul, could we just maybe return to that, actually? So could you walk us through your upbringing, so where you grew up and how, how it was, and then and then maybe speak to that gang experience as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I was born in Manchester, a place called um, Longsight originally, because that's where I, I spent um, my former years, 10 years. Um, and then when I was, I think it was 12, we moved to a place called Withington, which is not too far away, probably seven or eight miles away, um, which is about three or four miles away from Moss Side. Um, so I grew up in Withington anyway. Um, and at the age of 15, I used to hang around Moss Side quite a lot. Um, and we um, got into a gang, which was just more, it wasn't really a, a involved in crime as such. It was just gang fights. So we used to arrange to fight other gangs from different areas. So um, we'd, we'd, we'd arrange to meet upon you know, neutral territory and then we'd, We'd slug it out, so it started. That's how it started, um, and that was for about a year and a half, um, from the age of fifteen to sixteen and a half. And then um, I was recognised by some older guys because I was known to be quite fearless. So I would always be at the front whenever, whenever wherever the action was. So um, these older guys then took me under their wing, um, and that was my first kind of involvement i suppose in more serious crime so we we um, used to do armed robberies and security vans and stuff like that um and that was until i was about 18 and then i got arrested um for for a security van and was sent to prison for three years at 18 years of age so um that was my first experience of prison life i mean i've, I've only been to prison twice once was in this country and the, and the other was in germany um so yeah uh, I mean, I came out of prison. I was straight away back into into gang life. Really, that was at twenty twenty one. Gosh, and so you know, walking into so just before we sort of get into the prison experience, because I've interviewed a few people who've who've been in prison and they speak. We can speak to that sort of mini ecosystem, so to speak. But um, could you sort of speak to? that journey into the gang life, I suppose, just the gang coercion, the, the maybe the sense of belonging and, and 
because I can imagine at 15, you probably didn't, you know, your your motives and your behavior probably wasn't where it was on that journey. And, and it's the, through the coercion and or influence of other people. Could you sort of speak to how that became maybe heavier and heavier and, and, and more sort of profound as as you walk through the gang gang culture? Yeah, I mean, it was um, initially, the, I suppose the law of it was just the money. Um, it was it was it was quite substantial amounts of money that you could make, um, and it was just the whole gang life. And I, I suppose people said, "Oh, you got in with the wrong crowd." But I, there was a certain extent of, of wanting of wanting it. Maybe that I was influenced a little bit, but there was a. I always say I chose it because they dangled the carrot, let's say, and I willingly took it. It wasn't as if I was forced into gang life. It's just that I saw that as the next progression. Um, into trying to make a name for myself or to get somewhere in life um, because I didn't have any faith um, prior to that. And I just thought, you know, when I was questioned because people on numerous occasions said, what you do is wrong. And I said, well, it's not about right and wrong. It's just the way it is. You know, we get stepped on the strong survive. Just look at nature. Um, who decides what's right and wrong? It's not about right and wrong. It's Unfortunately, I said, that's just the way it is. I mean, that was just a, I suppose that was a, an excuse to justify um, the way I lived my life at the time. So, yeah, um, and when going into prison, that was more just a an education, I suppose, in, in, in learning from others how to be more astute, maybe, let's say, and not, not, um, not get caught. So, so it was almost like a, a, a criminal education. So, so tapping tapping into that actually so yeah you speak to this sort of criminal education and 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 alan langham a previous guest on the podcast spoke to that as well and spoke to the sense of, sort of maybe a lack of rehabilitation um but more of a, an astute awareness like you said of how to navigate an ecosystem how to maybe come through a hierarchy and 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 actually survive and thrive in in prison so to that point paul now with your with with your sort of head on uh, coming in with the prison ministry how do you because you've been there you've walked the walk you've you've kind of been on the other side of that how do you then approach the the 18 year old paul ogademi who's in that now and how do you kind of help them maybe see that it's it's not about trying to marinate through a hierarchy and become a better criminal but it's trying to change the change the perspective because you've walked those in those shoes and trying to appeal to that group to see to see beyond that it must be it must be quite difficult well it's the, i don't find it difficult in the sense that i think what, what, that we are created for a purpose um and each of us i always approach um prisoners with on an equal basis you know i'm i'm no better than them and you know i'm I see them as human beings made in the image of God and we have equal value and worth. Um, some of them might have made bad decisions in their lives as, as um, I did as well. Um, but I always say to them that you are invited to receive forgiveness from God. He doesn't force us. You know, I, I, I say to them, God loves you. He loves you to the extent that he's not going to force you to love him back. He demonstrates through his son how much he's um, willing to go for us and what he's done. Um, and he invites us to receive that um, forgiveness. So I, I try and first and foremost tell them that I see them as valuable 
as, 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 as no matter what they've done, they're still made in the image of God and they have a purpose and God has a purpose for them, but he, he will not force them to, um, to partake and join in. He invites them to join in. So that creates some interesting discussions. So, Paul, in this in this phase of life, um, as with a lot of uh, gangs, you know, the, the violence comes. Did did the drugs come in as well, or did were the, was the drugs sort of maybe sidelined? How did that did that play a part? Yeah, I mean, I used to I used to box from the age of about thirteen to fifteen, and I always said I'd never take drugs. Um, but once you get involved in gang life, then drugs just naturally come along. So first. When I was um, 17, that was the first time I ever took drugs, and that was cannabis. And it didn't seem so bad. It just, you know, it was kind of a, um, a class, a B, well, class B drug. So uh, I didn't really think you could get addicted to it, although I think differently about it now. But then when gang life became more intense, because after I came out of prison, we entered into what was now called an infamous um, gang war of, of Manchester between North Manchester and Mosside. Um, of which I was obviously um, part of the Mossad crew. And um, then con- cocaine was introduced because that obviously hyped you up. So when you were going out to um, exact revenge, let's say, on, on another gang, you'd, you'd take drugs to to give you that kind of, let's say, Dutch courage maybe, I don't know. So cocaine became a, I wouldn't say an everyday use, but it was an occasional use. But then some of the other gang members fell into the trap of, of regular, um, regular cocaine use and addiction, which I fortunately didn't enter into that addiction. So um, in the ecosystem of the, of the prison and sort of marinating through that, I know you, you sort of came out um, and you kind of maybe say you came, became out a better criminal or more nuanced criminal, yeah. so, to, so to speak. And then, so coming out of prison the first time at the age of 18 or 19? Well, no, I went, in, I went at 18 and I came out at 20. 20. So I, I served three years and um, two months. I mean, it, it was a three-year prison sentence, but you do two-thirds of that. But if you behave yourself, but I was a couple of times got involved in a few fights, so I lost, you lose time. So I lost some time, but I served about two years and two months. And coming back out of, uh, of there, Paul, did, did, did the violence and the drugs continue at, at that point um, as, as you came out as a 20-year-old uh, and you went back into the gangs? Is that, is that right? Yeah, I went back into the gang because they were just, they were there waiting for me. I mean, they came to pick me up and it was, we were, we were, comrades as such we all i think in life we all want to belong um and gang life was what i identified with and these were my brothers i suppose in arms kind of thing so so it was just natural for me i didn't have any intent when i went into prison i didn't have any intention of changing or reforming and not that there was anything really to reform to help you to reform in prison when i was there it was literally 23 hours a day behind your cell door um, everybody came, became religious because you were allowed out on a Sunday to go to church. So it was an extra time. And plus you had once every two weeks cinema time. But other than that, mainly it was 23 hours a day behind your cell door. So coming out of prison was just um, a natural progression back into um, gang life, crime. 
And then, and then coming out in back into gang life, um, you, um, so it was more, maybe more violence, more kind of reciprocity from, from gang culture. Um, could you maybe speak to the second instance where you were in prison in, in Germany? How did, how did sort of that come about? Yeah, that was not, to be honest, it was not long after I'd got, got out of prison, um, in, um, in uh, the UK, Manchester. So I was at Strangeways and then was shipped out from Strangeways to a place called Lancaster, which was a castle. So I carried out the rest of my time. I served out the rest of my time there. But when I came out back into gang life, but I also we also used to do, we, we were international criminals, I suppose, in a sense, because we used to steal Rolex watches. Um, so we used to go abroad to Germany, to Switzerland, to, um, to Holland. And on one particular occasion, we, you know, we, stole some jewellery and it just went a bit wrong um, and I was arrested so I served seven months in a German prison um, and then I was deported back to the UK and back just back into gang life again yeah and I suppose when that's all you know and 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 that's your primary community initially that seems to be I guess the default position to to, to move back in in yeah. into that yeah yeah so was how as we move through this into into this sort of revelation and, and the life change just could you speak to the to the time in the German prison was that fundamentally quite different to the time in an English prison um or was it quite similar yeah it was different in the sense that I was in a I did learn to speak what's called Platzdeutsch, which is kind of foreigners German. Um, but you didn't identify with any of the prisoners there. It was just more, you know, you got on with your time, you did what you had to do, and then you just really just long for the day when you could get out, be released and go back to your own gang culture and your own comrades, let's say. So so for me, I didn't really, it was it was almost like time stopped for me in Germany. Um, and then I was just glad to get back after seven seven months. And so once you, once you're back, could you could you maybe speak to um, yeah what what started to change, or maybe even just the the, the revelatory point in in and of itself, because um, that story in and of itself is is absolutely interesting. Yeah, um, well, it was at the height when when we. When I got back from Germany, that's when um, it was not long after when the, the factions then came at war with each other. So there was shooting, stabbings, machetes were used, etc. It became quite violent. It, it, the violence accelerated a lot quicker. So from earlier on, it would be baseball bats and knives. Then very quickly, from one, it started at a party when one of our guys was was attacked by by seven of the guys from um, this other gang that's when it really escalated. So then guns, next thing you know, I, we, we had a meeting um, and uh, they said, that, you, you know, that this means war. Um, if we start this, if we retaliate, it's war. It's just all that war. So, I, you know, we all agreed that you couldn't let somebody just come onto your territory and take liberties. So they said, right, okay, that's all I wanted to hear. Then this guy walked in, two holdover bags, just tipped them on the floor. Out came guns and shotguns. So... Um, it, it just really escalated and, and turned violent very, very quickly. Um, so it was kill or be killed in, in a sense, you, you know, people being taken pot shots up um, on the street. And that's why it got the name Gunchester. So, yeah, it was, it was quite, quite hairy. But it, 
to me, it was almost like I just found myself in the middle of it. It wasn't anything that you'd planned. It was just, that's just the way it was. And then quite quickly, it was just became the norm. And would that be in the daytime or would that predominantly be at night? Was it, was it more of a sort of a nighttime kind of engagement? I'd say predominantly at nighttime, but there were, there were some daytime um, incidents. Um, and for me, I suppose the revelation came when I decided that, I mean, an incident occurred where my girlfriend was raped by one of the other gang members. So I, I then just decided that was, that was, that was beyond um, anything that I would have even imagined. So I was absolutely furious and devastated at the same time. Um, so then I decided that was when I properly decided in my mind that I would take somebody else's life because that I felt that it was fully justified that what that person had done demanded that kind of response. So um, it was during this time that I was planning to to murder this guy that I was going over a escape route um, and bumped into a guy who was handing out leaflets. This guy passed me the leaflet. I took the leaflet and he held onto it. And he said to me, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And I said, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ existed. And I believe that Jesus Christ was a good man. But look where it got him. So I said, it's, well, fortunately, the weak get stepped on and the strong survive. You try and show any sign of weakness, you'll, you'll fall by the wayside. And then this young man just said to me, well, Jesus Christ died so that you could be saved. And that's all he said. And he left, he let go of the leaflet and I just carried on going. And I was reading this leaflet um, and I'd been in prison, when I was in prison in the punishment block, um, the prison chaplain came to see me because you have all your privileges removed, but the prison chaplain's come allowed to see you. And he gave me a book called uh, The Cross and the Switchblade, which was by um, this guy, I can't remember, it was David something, but it was, it was about Nicky Cruz, who was a gang member in America. And so that had an immediate kind of connection with me. And so that was the first time I'd ever prayed, even though I didn't believe in God. So when that guy handed me this leaflet, I kind of connected, automatically connected the two together because that's when I first kind of considered um, what and who Jesus Christ was and then I began to think if I should die tomorrow which was quite possible because of the life that I was living if there was a God what redeeming features do I have and I examined my life and thought there are no redeeming features whatsoever I'm just a greedy, money-hunting, violent, um, selfish criminal. That's I, I came to that evaluation of myself. Um, and then I started having conversations, which I, I think a psychiatrist would say was, was psychosis, because I was having conversations with my, in my mind, and it was like the devil was saying to me, well, you're too far gone. Look at all the things that you've done. There's no way you can be saved. How can you be saved from all that that you've done? It's impossible. So then I realized that I wasn't in the right frame of mind to carry out what I was going to do. So um, I went back home and um, 
I then went to my brother's place a couple of weeks later, still with these conversations going in my mind, waking up each morning think, thinking, I'll be returning back to myself. I cut myself off from everybody, thinking that, um, because at the time the rumour had gone around that I was going mad. So um, my mum had come back from Nigeria to visit my brother, which is why I went to my brother's place. And um, when I went there, I said to my mum, I said, do you think I'm a bad person? And she said, well, you're not really a bad person. You've got a good heart. It's just that you've got mixed up with the wrong crowd. So I said, but I chose it. You know, I said, you don't know the things that I've done. You don't fully understand the things that I've done. So my mum, who was loosely Catholic, had said, let's just say the Lord's Prayer together. So I didn't know the Lord's Prayer, really. I couldn't say, I couldn't, I couldn't even get the first line out. Um, so I started to get really frustrated. So I started punching my brother's, putting my fist through my brother's doors. And the next door neighbour um, thought there was someone was being murdered. So they phoned the police. So the police arrived, saw it was me. I was known to the police. So they called for backup. And I don't remember the, the full details of it. But mum said I was just like a man possessed in the street. There was police, there was six police officers trying to hold me down. And I was just wild and crazy. I was lashing out. They'd handcuffed me, put my hands behind my back and handcuffed my, uh, my hands behind my back, took my belt off and strapped my feet together because I was kicking out and going crazy. And then they, they decided that because I was so erratic, the police decided not to take me to the police station, but to take me to Withington Psychiatric Psychiatric Hospital to be, obviously, to be sectioned. So I got to the psychiatric hospital and there were two psychiatrists in front of me. I was being restrained by the police and I realised, because I'd seen in prison, that when some prisoners had gone, just flipped, they were given what's called a liquid cosh. They were injected to sedate them. And I thought, with what's going on in my mind? I don't want any more drugs in my system. So I managed to convince the two psychiatrists that I'd had a bad um, or a potent um, line of cocaine. And I said, you know, I've taken this cocaine and it's freaked me out, maybe paranoid, but I'm all right now. But I could still hear these voices in my mind, but I realised at the same time, I was lucid enough to, to realise that I was in danger of being sectioned. So after, after about 30 minutes, it was deemed that I wasn't a danger to myself or to the public. So the police had the option of either releasing me or um, charging me with disturbing the peace or, or something along those lines. And they just decided to let me go because I'd managed to convince them that I'd calmed down. And I hadn't really committed any crime other than wrestling with them in the street. And um, I got in a taxi and on the way home, we'd stopped at some traffic lights and I saw this church. So I said to the taxi driver, can I get out, please? And so I got out of the taxi, walked into this church and there must have been a midweek youth meeting going on. It was, was November. It was quite dark. So it was about 4.30, 4.45 in the evening time. It was quite, you know, light had been lost. And um, I walked into the church and there was a man there who said to me, can I help you? And I said, well, you can't help me. Only God can help me if he exists. So then the, the man said, there's a young man here who needs the Lord Jesus Christ um, to come into his life. Let's pray for him. So I heard them praying in the background. Um, 
And I walked to the front of the church and I said, look, God, if you're there, um, you need to give me something to hold on to. You need to help me out because I'm, I'm struggling here. If you don't, I said, I'm going to kill somebody or somebody's going to kill me. But either way, it doesn't, doesn't end well. And then the opposite of what I thought would happen happened. Um, again, if it would have been, let's say, analyzed by a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist, a clinical, clinical psychiatrist, he'd probably say it was psychosis. But anyway, what happened then was it was almost like a TV screen appeared in front of me. This is obviously all going on in my mind, though, but it's, it was, it's as real as I'm talking to you now. And, and it took me back to the very first time I was conscious of stealing, which was when I was seven years of age, and I took a penny from my mum's purse. Right up to the time of, of the present, and I was undone. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. I, I, if you if you if you ever cheated on somebody who's been really close to you and you've been found out and you feel awful about it, well, multiply that. I don't know a thousand times, and you know when close to how I felt. I just felt totally undone, and I remember falling to my knees, say, recognizing that there's if there is any truth that. Um, the, the, the crimes and, the, and the, the sins that I've done can be forgiven. It has to be a supernatural forgiveness. It can't just be brushed aside. There has to be some kind of penalty to pay. I recognize that. And so I said, if I find, can find forgiveness, if you can forgive me and my sins can be dealt with in your son, then I'm claiming that forgiveness because I recognize there was no other way that that, I, that could have been possible for the crimes that I'd committed to be to be dealt with. And then I can just say, oh, I felt, felt what I mean, it was like I was in the presence of something greater than me, which I now know to be the presence of God. And it was overwhelming to the extent it was like a million volts surging through my body. It was just an amazing feeling. But also the overwhelming sense of the presence of love, overwhelming. To that extent, I knew from that very moment I would never, ever enter into a life, the life of crime again. That was, for me, it was finished. I was convinced utterly and totally that God exists. Um, and so I left that church, um, a different person, a changed person. Um, never, ever entered back into a life of crime, even though I was threatened with the fact that being outside of the gang left me exposed. I wouldn't last um, six months. I'd be dead before I knew it. And I just said to them, well, I've got peace with God. And if I die tomorrow, that's the most important thing, that I've got peace with God. Wow. I mean, that's such a journey and, and also such a, a, a sharp revelation in, in that moment and an experience in the moment. So, Paul, could you maybe speak to how you did start to piece your life back together? Because if I'm right, I think you didn't necessarily move away from that area. So you stayed no. in the area, which, which, again, you're known to the area, you're known to the gangs, you're known to everyone in that area. So how did you start to incrementally piece your life back together um, and who did you start to sort of surround yourself with at that time yeah I mean I, I decided that it was um, I, I had to do something different with my life I'd have to you know find employment educate myself get you know get some work so um, I was thinking what could I do and I thought I'd either be a social worker and try and persuade younger people not to, to go down the path that I uh, took or to enter into um, making furniture. And the reason why that came along was because um, at the height of my criminal life, 
we used to have tailor-made clothes. So clothes used to be an important thing. You used to look, dress smart, um, look the part, as they say. So I used to have my clothes made by this tailor. Um, and he had a unit in this building. And in part of that building was another unit where there were some guys who made furniture. So I used to, after going for the first fitting, he'd say, I'll come back in about an hour and a half, just when I put this together, and I'll just put it on you, and then we'll um, start knocking something up for you. And I used to go and then watch these guys make furniture. I'd stand in the doorway and just watch them because I, was, I found it interesting. Um, so anyway, the next couple of days or a couple of weeks after, it was a couple of weeks after, a couple of weeks after I'd had that experience, um, I decided to just make some um, investigations. And it was about, I mean, it must must have been about six months or so, seven months of of just keeping myself out of the people's way, doing some reading, reading. I read the Bible every day for about three or four hours a day, just trying to soak in as much as I possibly could. Um, and I remember bumping into one of my friend, my brother's friends. And I said, oh, because he was a social worker. And I said, oh, all right, Tony, how are you doing? Because he was walking down the street and I was walking towards him. And he said, I said to him, hi, Tony, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm all right. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. And he, he was a bit off with me, is what I thought. So anyway, about two weeks later, my brother said to me, hey, did you see Tony um, walking, the other, walking um, in, uh, on Wilburn Road the other day? And you let on to him. I said, yeah, I did. But he was a bit off with me. And he said, do you know why? He said, because he didn't recognize you. He said, you used to walk around with a, a, a snarl on your face, but your face was so relaxed, he said. He just didn't recognize you. It softened. Your face had softened. He said, so it was only afterwards he thought, I wonder if that was Paul. And then he spoke to my brother. So anyway, that was that. So again, then in the, the following summer, so it'd been about six months or so that I'd kept myself out of the way, tried to um, just look for a church to go to that was an important thing couldn't really find a church and I went to um, central Manchester no sorry I went to Manchester University first um, and inquired about social work courses and I, because I was 23 they said you either have to do a, a foundation or access course or come back next year and you can be assessed to see if you have the aptitude as a mature student um, so I said, okay, I'll bear that in mind. So then from there, I went to Central Manchester College of Building because I knew they did furniture courses there. And I walked in, I said, you know, what courses do you have? I said, oh, well, we've got this furniture course, but unfortunately, the bad news is it started. But the good news is there's one place left. So you can start today if you want. It's only a week in. So I thought, well, why not? So I just took my coat off and that was it and I started and I was there for two years. But... um. In between that time, I'd been praying to God, saying, God, you know, you need to um, help me out and find some Christian friends because I, all the people that I know were members of gangs. So um, one day I was on the bus going to um, college and I heard, hey, Ogie, because that was my nickname. And I turned around, it was my friend called Clive who had grown up with from the age of... 13 to 15 we used to fight together in gangs and he then said um well, I, saw, I saw i saw the way you were going and it wasn't for me i thought it was getting too serious and violent so I, I, it wasn't for me but on the bus he said to me what are you doing i said i'm going to college he said you going to college that's unbelievable what's happened i said i've become a christian he said you're joking he said i've become a christian i keep being a christian at 17 
He said, you know, one day I saw you about seven years ago or six years ago. And I remember I saw the guys you were with. They were mean looking guys, he said. And I remember praying for you that particular day. So that, Clive was my very first Christian friend. And then when we were at college, we, we, we went on a trip to, um, to Bayswater in London because we were visiting the Victoria and Albert Museum, looking at furniture and Harrods and a place called Heels. And there were 60, over 60 students that went. And I was twinned up with the only church-going person on the course. He was on the cabinet-making course. I was on the Polstian furnishing. Pack. We, we you switched around by that particular time. He was on a different course than me. Um, and he was the only one who was a practicing Christian who, in, who, who um, introduced me to other Christians. So you can call that coincidence, which some people might say. But for me, that was an answer to prayer because that was something that I much needed at that particular time. Um, and, that, and, and the people that he introduced me to really helped me to grow with my understanding of my faith um, and really encouraged me in my faith as well, which was just such a, a blessing. So, so you're starting to piece together very much a new, um, a, a, a new line of, of work and um, and vocation, really, um, and also you're starting to piece together a a, a new community because I, some, one of the fundamental concepts about this, Paul, is around is around the, the community you you associate with, whether you acknowledge it or not, influences your life both overtly and covertly and you know one one of the truisms i kind of say and repeat is you know you are a sum total of your closest five friends you know because the because the people you spend time with you know feed into your life either positive or or negative and that might be subconscious it, it might be conscious but so at that time you're starting to get a really healthy community around you, you know, Christians, people that, that, that are watching out for you and, and starting to feed into your, into, into your life. And, and then I suppose in, in that, in that vein, could you then speak to some of the fundamental changes along the way that you're starting to see inside yourself? So you're going to college, you've got two or three close, close-ish Christian friends. What, what, did you start to, did, did some of your sort of, did it just, Carry on growing from there. Just this, this cadence of of, of 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 sort of complete one eighty change in in your in character. Yeah, I mean, it, after Clive, who I met on the bus, um, introduced me to a church. It was an independent evangelical church that he was attending, and he said, he said to me, "Are you, go, are you going to church?" And I said, "Well, I can't. I have no idea what church is the right church to go to." And he said, "Well, I'm going to a church in Charlton." And he said, "I can pick you. Where are you?" I said, "I'm in Wally Range." He said, "I'll pick you up Sunday." He said, "I'll come pick you up." So I said, "Oh, great." Um, so went to his church and um, enjoyed it. You know, I couldn't get enough of this newfound faith that I'd, yeah, just changed my life. And so um, they recognised that I was, I'd fully bought into this, this Christian faith. And after about a year of attending that church, I became a youth worker in the church as well, on a voluntary basis, of course, at the same time as working. Um, but I didn't entirely dissociate myself from from my former friends or gang friends i still used to see them and talk to them but um you know i just said to them that's not for me i'm not involved in it anymore um god has preserved my life to this stage and no one's come along and because they said oh there's a bullet with your name on it it's good you know you, you once you're outside the gang you, you're more exposed and i said well that, so be it and i said but no bullets come along i said so I, I put that down to the fact that god has graciously preserved my life um, 
And then from that is when I started, I suppose, being recognised by some other churches about, you know, as being given the experience that I'd had, the life that I'd lived, as being someone who might be able to have um, a better rapport with with other criminals that they were trying to work with and trying to um, minister to. So that's where I, that's when I used to go on these walks and barbecues and then speak after the barbecue to to these young ex offenders type of thing. Um, yeah, and then I recognised for a long time that God wants me to do something more. So I've been, I mean, I've slowly been working that out. I've been a little bit of a Jonah, I think, trying to 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 reluctantly go that way, but more and more so. I've just felt the call um, just to step out in faith, you know, and to to join in with this plan that God has for me, I suppose that's the right way to say it. Absolutely, Paul. And, you know, having an organic sort of calling, so to speak, in, into your life, just, you know, the, the, the desire to speak to other people which are very much in your in your shoes and earlier you know having a school ministry and prison ministry whereby you can capture the hearts and minds of people early on and also even when they've you know they've, they've, they're in jail um can can kind of speak to uh, your organic story really and i suppose elicits a, a sense of passion in you to to really build rapport and and how do you build rapport is it, it just is it through just telling your organic story to telling the narrative of, of, of your life or how do you seem to to, to build this sense of uh, of identity with people yeah i mean i think my, my first line of opening up the conversation, I suppose, is is just telling them that that they are they are loved, you know. And as I, I said, whether you like it or not, you're made in the image of God. Whether you realise it or not, you're made in the image of God. And whether you realise it or not, God loves you. Um, and it's you know, I I always find that that is some people find it hard to believe. Some people find it more interesting. Um, but it, it it always gets a response of some sort because there's, there are, there are obviously questions about my life. How did I get you know how did I get out of gang life, et cetera, et cetera. But then how you know how can I how how can I be so sure that God exists, et cetera, et cetera. So that opens it opens up all kinds of different questions. Um, and as I've the more experience I've gained the more able I am to to answer the questions. Obviously, I'm, I've gone back and researched. When someone's given me a question, I've said, well, I'm not quite sure about that yet, but I'll, I'll have a think about it. I'll come back and I'll, I'll let you know. So that has given me, ex- val- I think, valuable experience in, in, in being able to answer the questions that they have, because some of them have some, some quite deep, deep questions. So, yeah. So, Paul, you've alluded to your mental health throughout this whole journey, actually, and, you know, your mental health whilst you were in prison just and when you got out of prison. Could you speak to maybe the 360 on mental health and how it's come, yeah, maybe 360 into very much a place of peace and stability versus where it may have been more chaotic even in the gangs through through the period of taking drugs? Uh, and regard, re- regarding to faith as well, how, how maybe that has given you more mental health stability um, along the way? Yeah, I think when I first began to have this kind of so-called psychotic experience, let's say, I think if I didn't, because I was reading the Bible at the time and I remember 
this this was this was a period that lasted for about six months. This was the six months before I started going to college. Even after I had the the experience of going into the church and having that amazing, I believe, Damascus Road type of experience, I still had the the voices in my mind, um, and I was wrestling with that on a daily basis, thinking, you know, God help me to wake up in the morning and not to have these voices in my mind. Um, and it was quite disconcerting, but I used to always fall back on the Bible tells me Jesus has paid the price. The Bible tells me Jesus has paid the price because it, it, it would always come back to me to say, you're not good enough. Look at the things you've done. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Um, and I always clung to that. The price has been paid. I believe I believe in what um, the Bible teaches. I believe that what God has said is true, that his son has, has taken away the punishment that I deserve has paid the price. I said, so also it says that, that you're a liar from the beginning. I'm not listening. And after about six months, it's almost as if that voice just switched off just like that. It just stopped. And I would say that my faith has given me, um, because we all go through difficult times and we all have struggles and we all wrestle with, with issues. You know, I, I know Christians who suffer with depression, but I think the underlying thread that, we all identify with is that in Christ Jesus, we have a hope that things will get better. And it's a sure hope. It's not just this flimsy hope that some people might hope for in this world. It's a sure hope that things will get better. God loves us. God cares for us and that he will bring us through it. We're not alone. And it's that it's my faith has given me that assurance that even when sometimes I feel alone, I'm not alone. And that has helped me immensely, I think, to get through the dark periods of, because of, even, even as a Christian, I've, I've experienced dark times. But it's that fundamental faith that I have and the hope that things will get better and that God has promised me that, those, that, that it will get better and that he will provide whatever I need. So Paul, could you, to people listening to this, could you maybe speak to how important it is to follow your passion and sense of calling and and maybe not only tap into that, but maybe expand it and really invest in what you feel passionate about? And maybe what would you say to people who, who, who might say to you, Paul, I've got no, I can't, I'm not passionate about anything. I, I don't know what, I don't know where my passion lies. I would say that, again, going back to the statement that I made, I'd speak to prisoners, that we are created for a purpose. Everybody has potential. We all have potential. We're created with potential. And we can only find our full potential, I believe, in God. Um, but that God invites us and doesn't force us. But it does say that he who asks shall receive and he who's, or she who seeks will will find so i just encourage people who are in dark places who don't really feel that god is close to them um not to give up hope and to keep on wrestling with with god because he will he's true to his he's true to his word he will um draw near to them and give that give them that sense of his presence i think so yeah, that's and that's what that's what inspires me to want to go and tell other people because I know that in this world there are lots of people who feel in a hopeless situation. 
And um, I mean, I'll, I'll let you know that my brother, my brother at 34 years of age took his, took his own life um, because he lost all hope. Um, but I don't want anybody to reach that, that kind of level of, of hopelessness where they feel that life isn't worth living. Because I know that God has a plan for us all and that's an exciting plan. It's a, it's a meaningful plan. It's a plan in which we'll, it's a, it's a plan that encourages us to flourish or enables us to flourish. Um, and it's a, God, it's a plan that God has for us. So it's my passion to get people to understand that, to know that and to, to, to experience that in their own lives. Uh, that's powerful, actually, because as you were saying, Paul, you know the 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 presence of hope. There's 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 almost this reciprocity in that in 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 hope that it gives back to you as much as it as it as it keeps you focused. It gives you a reassurance, and it's focus reassurance, focus reassurance, and in that because you know suicide is a pathology of low is a pathology. Uh, predominantly of loneliness not just of loneliness but the, but, but people commit suicide alone they, they they rarely rarely ever commit suicide in community and and that hope can hopefully drive people to community to to, to people to like-minded people in community and you're right can stop the pathology of lon- of loneliness uh, and of despair that compounds from loneliness and a lack of hope uh, to bringing people along alongside of each other and it seems seems to me that if we can if we can compound the if we can compound the the advantages of community people people will we will start to see an incremental decrease in in suicide rates if if we can just get alongside people and it's the it's it's not always a problem but you know there's some fantastic work that samaritans do and the other suicide prevention schemes and charities do but it's reliant on the individual and actually what we need to do is almost like you said in, in you know come alongside these people whether they like it or not because you you can't you can't commit suicide when you've got someone who's full of hope and full of full of positivity and who's 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 freely sharing that with you and and that just might look like a meal that might look like a a drink a a cup of tea it might look like something more than that but it it starts to break down the pathology of isolation which is fundamentally where suicide is that is the polar end of that and and that is powerful paul and that 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 distillation of hope yeah i mean i think also what i what i pray for for people is is for God to help me to see them as he sees them. You know, help me to see them as you see them, not not as I perceive them to be. Um, yeah, I think um, if people understood fully or realised, just realised that there is a God who has gone to the ends of the earth for them um, and that they are so loved and there are a community of people who share in that love that they can be a part of as well. I mean, that's just, for me, that's, I think that's what Christian faith is all about. So finally, as we're coming to land on the conversation, Paul, um, again, for people sort of listening to this, if we could maybe, if you could speak to the 18-year-old Paul uh, Ogunyemi, is there any words of advice that you'd offer to him uh, that, that might be heard by listeners now? Yeah, I think the advice I'd offer to myself as an 18-year-old is life is not about 
the amount of possessions and about things. Life isn't about things, the abundance of things. You know, we're, we're always told that our life can be improved, you know, by, by having a big house, a fancy car, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, nowadays when they're selling you a car, they're not selling you a car. They're trying to sell you a lifestyle. You know, it's, 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 it's more than just this, this, this thing. Um, and I would say that life is all about relationships. That's what life is about. First and fundamental is a relationship with God. And then life is about the quality of relationships that you can have with other people, with other human beings. That's what life is. That's what, that's what encourages people to thrive when they are in community with people who love them for who they are, and who don't try to ex- or expect them to be something before they can love them, but who love them right where they are um, and encourage them to, to grow so that they might, as human beings, flourish as well. That's, I think that's what, as Christians, we, we should be doing, trying to encourage each other um, so that we might f- flourish. And that might then overspill into our communities. Um, it's a bit like, um, I remember listening to, to, um, to Brian Cox, you know, the, the, the scientist, and he was talking about the, the cosmic microwave background from the beginnings of the Earth. You know, when, when, when life first started, he said, we have this radiation and this co- cosmic microwave background that, that is permeating through, through the universe. And I'm thinking that's a bit like us as Christians. If we're so filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that will kind of overspill from us into, into our communities. Um, yeah, that's my longing anyway. That's my hope and my desire that churches might be so full, an individual might be so full of the Holy Spirit that like it just permeates society. Well, that's powerful. That's really powerful. So listen, as, as, as we're landing on the conversation, is there, if people want to get in touch um, as something that from this conversation might have struck a chord in them, how, uh, how can people reach out to you? I know, I know you go into schools and you also visit prisons. Um, is, is there any way of reaching out to you either via email or indeed via a website or by a church? How, how would people get in touch with you? I mean, feel free, I mean I'll give you my email. Um, Business email. I've got work email, my um, personal email. So I'll give them. My, I'm quite happy for people to have my my personal email. Um, if people email me, I will endeavour to respond to as many people as I possibly can. Um, I'll always read when emails are as long as it's not spam. I'll always read emails. I'm not sure that I can get back in touch with everybody, but I will always read through people's emails. So feel free to give my email out. I'm, I'm, at this moment in time, I'm in. I'm in. Um, I'm in. Um, kind of the motions of putting together a leaflet to approach more schools and to, to offer the schools this, 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 this opportunity to, to, for me to come in to speak free of charge. I mean, I'm, I'm offering to do it two to three days a month. I'm not going to charge them anything to do it. Um, so hopefully that will build and I'll have more than of a, of a website maybe where people can contact me more easily, let's say. Paul, that's fantastic. What we'll do is we'll, we'll add your uh, business email into the show notes so people can get in touch. And, you know, from there... Oh, personal, personal email. Rather. Personal email. We'll get you personal email. And we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes and we'll, um, so, so people can get in touch and, and, and find you there. Uh, because not only the insights you give are fantastic, the, uh, just the revelation and the organic story from your own life is, is powerful, Paul. You know, and, and, uh, and a 
complete 180 from 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 the trajectory you were heading on. So I think you know you know your testimony is is powerful. So I just want to thank you for the last hour, actually, Paul, because it's been it's been fantastic just speaking to you and hearing about your uh, about your story. Well, thank you for inviting me.